This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Today on Climate One, our topic is the future of nuclear power in the age of climate disruption. I'm Greg Dalton. Welcome, everyone. More than three years after a tsunami crippled three nuclear reactors at the Fukushima nuclear power plant in Japan, we'll look at the status of the atomic industry. Every day, the Fukushima reactors are spewing 70,000 gallons of radioactive water into the Pacific Ocean with no real end in sight. In the United States, the industry faces more systemic challenges. Abundant and cheap natural gas is making new nukes uneconomic, despite the efforts of the Obama administration to jumpstart a nuclear renaissance. But severe weather driven by fossil fuels is causing former foes of nuclear energy to say it must be part of a low-carbon strategy to meet growing demand for energy without frying the planet. Over the next hour, we'll discuss the economics, waste, technology, and other aspects of nuclear power. Joining our live audience here at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, we're pleased to have with us three experts. John Cooney is a research fellow at the Sire Taylor Center for Energy Policy and Finance at Stanford. He worked for more than two decades as a researcher at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. He's also author of the book, Cold Cash, Cool Climate. Other guest is Dave Lockbaum, director of the Nuclear Safety Project at the Union of Concerned Scientists. He's the author of Fukushima, the Story of a Nuclear Disaster. And Per Peterson was a member of the Blue Ribbon Commission on America's Nuclear Future. He's a professor of nuclear engineering at UC Berkeley. Please welcome him to Climate One. Dave Lockbaum, let's begin with you. What is the story of Fukushima? How did it really impact the nuclear industry, and what are the most severe consequences that you've seen? I think the accident at Fukushima revealed some vulnerabilities that need to be better managed so that lessens the likelihood that we have that kind of problem here in the United States. Those vulnerabilities, in terms of upgrades, procedure change, training, and so on, have a cost associated with them. So there's a cost associated with the industry. The industry is also concerned about, as they implement these lessons learned, these upgrades, that it doesn't distract from their focus on day-to-day safety of the plants. So it's a challenge of maintaining what you've got and adding on to it with the Fukushima upgrades. Per Peterson, what do you think has been the impact of the, the lessons of Fukushima and how has it affected the global industry? Has it slowed down nuclear power plant deployment? Well, I think that there has been some significant impact from the Fukushima accident. The key lessons that we did learn involve what you do to manage beyond design basis events and having flexible capabilities to restore basic safety systems if they've been damaged by things that weren't anticipated originally. Also, we know that there were some mistakes that were made in terms of anticipating what could happen. The Japanese should have been knowledgeable about and have taken more action with respect to the potential for tsunamis. In the end, you can integrate those lessons into the design of new plants, and probably the most important feature that we've introduced into the new U.S. designs is what's called passive safety. That is, 
the ability for the plant to shut down and remove decay heat without needing external source of, sources of electrical power, which was ultimately the primary cause of the damage to the plants at Fukushima. And how many of U.S. nuclear plants have fully implemented passive power ready so that a Fukushima can't happen here? Because the, the problem is, you know, the storage in the basement gets flooded and then it, it knocks the whole thing out. So, well, Mayor Peterson? Our current plants don't have passive safety, and it's not really practical to backfit them with those capabilities. But what we're doing is to introduce additional equipment and capabilities so that they can cope with essentially indefinite loss of, of electrical power supply and still not have fuel damage or release radioactive materials. This is a backfit to the existing plants. With new plants, you have the flexibility to actually make significant additional improvements. And that's one of the, one of the things that makes it attractive to try to upgrade our infrastructure. This is a problem that our country has pretty much universally is that we have a lot of old infrastructure that's not as safe as what we could build if we were to make the investments to replace it. John Kumi, uh, how did Fukushima affect China, Germany, other countries? Did they take their foot off the gas on nuclear or did they keep going ahead? Well, some countries like Germany did take their foot off the gas and change their policies. Um, I think Perry can talk more specifically about what's happened in China, but it seems like they're forging ahead as far as I can tell. I think that that's, well, certainly the Chinese have the largest and most rapid program today for deploying new reactors, and they're working with a wide variety of technologies, including essentially every option that we're knowledgeable about that doesn't use water as a coolant, which would be uh, the next major step in reactor technology beyond what we've been doing for the last 60 years. It was actually the, the former head of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, I think, is involved in overseeing the, the nuclear reform uh, initiatives in Japan, and he actually said that it's the water that keeps them up at night. What are they going to do with the water? All the water cooling going out into the ocean, is there a solution for that? The issues that the Japanese are facing right now, I think, are, are being driven in large part by the complete breakdown in trust and confidence in the regulatory authorities because currently they have capabilities to clean the water to levels that meet even drinking water standards and certainly are acceptable for release into the ocean, but they have not yet been able to authorize those releases because of a breakdown in their political process. It's really critical that they do so, though, because continuing to store these increasing quantities of water deters them from taking other actions that are important to clean up and eventually remove fuel from the damaged reactors. Just to add, add a little bit yeah. to that, the Japanese plan to install an ice wall around the plant. Yeah, that sounds wild. It's been done on smaller scales, um, but when you don't have many options, you tend to take the few that are available and try them. So their biggest problem is they have a lot of groundwater intrusion into the plant that then becomes contaminated and they can't discharge it. So it adds to their backlog of contaminated water the ice dam, if it works, will divert water around the plant so that you don't continually add to your backlog so you can better manage the water that you've got. Over 80 million gallons of water has to be dealt with. And are you concerned, uh, will you eat fish uh, from the coast of California? Are you concerned about a little bit of Fukushima, be it in your salmon? No, I don't, don't, don't have that concern. If you're able to detect radiation in, in the fish off the California coast, it's well below the acceptable level. So I wouldn't have any concerns at all. Mayor right, Peterson? Right now, we have, well, since the accident, uh, Berkeley has been monitoring independently radiation levels in rainwater and uh, fish and foods and other things. And 
And basically what we're finding right now is that we can detect in, say, milk and such, uh, cesium, at a level of radioactivity that's 10,000 10, times less than the naturally occurring potassium-40 that's also in the milk. So you, you can detect the cesium. You can also find out whether it's coming from the bomb testing of the 1960s versus from Fukushima because of the ratio of cesium isotopes. And most of what you detect around now in the United States at these very low levels is the residual stuff from the bomb testing. Okay, so it's our own darn fault there. Uh, so go out for a sushi dinner in Tokyo, your game, you're in? I don't like sushi at all, so I would Pear or John, sushi dinner in Tokyo? Sure. I, I have confidence in their public health capabilities so that, that I, would, I would be perfectly comfortable eating any food that I would consume in Japan. Let's talk about the state of the U.S. industry. A lot of reactors, what, 103, 104 reactors built in the 60s, 70s, going back to the 50s even. A couple of new ones in the south part of the U.S. John Kumi, how would you describe the health of the U.S. nuclear industry today? So the first thing to remember is that the history has some great success, but also some serious issues. And we saw with about 15%, 15 or 20% of those reactors that you named, we had very high costs, high costs that were unanticipated. No one, no one expected that it would cost that much. And there were a number of factors that led to that. One was you had slower demand growth in the, the 70s and 80s. You had competition. You had people starting to build independent power. So that also led to competition with completing nuclear plants. There were high interest rates. There were cost overruns. There were structural issues in the industry itself where people were building plants before they were fully designed. And so some of the changes that have been made in the regulatory process and in the industry were meant to deal with some of these issues. And so we've uh, speeded up licensing, although it sounds like from our conversation earlier that the licensing hasn't been fully reformed. We've also standardized reactor designs and become I think a lot more sensible in how we design and build reactors. The question remains whether those changes will be enough to allow the industry to build plants on time and on budget. We just don't know yet. Because the industry record of delivering on budget is not so good. Historically, it's, it's, that's true. Remember there was the too cheap to meter, right? It's going to be everywhere. It didn't work out that way. Right. But a lot of those issues have been addressed. And so the question is whether we've done enough to allow the industry then to come to the point where they can give us the plants on time and on budget. And, Per Peterson, the two plants that are under construction in the southern part of the United States with some federal subsidies, costs are going up, they're $10 billion projects. Why should we trust that industry's ability to deliver power at the price they promise? That's a very good question, and I think that if you look back, we've had 60 years in remarkably little innovation in reactor technology. The first water-cooled submarine reactor was launched 60 years ago, and we're still using water as a coolant for reactors. This said, the new plants that are being built in South Carolina and in Georgia, they do have some major improvements over previous designs. One of them is the passive safety that I mentioned earlier. But the other is the use of modular construction technology, which now does the majority of the fabrication of the buildings and the equipment modules in factories. And the AP-1000 that Westinghouse developed and is in construction there, there's also several of them being built with the same design in China. 
And the implementation of modular construction does have the potential to give you much better control over schedule and cost. This said, it's still a puzzle why the construction prices are as high as they are, because it takes twice as much steel and concrete to build the coal plant as it does to build the nuclear plant of the same capacity, and yet the nuclear plant costs two to three times more than the coal plant. So why is there this factor of four to six per kilogram or per ton of steel and concrete between the price that you have to pay to build a coal plant and build a nuclear plant? There must be some way to bring these numbers closer together. And how about regulation? It's oftentimes industry will try to say that it's the regulator's fault because they make it hard, that there's red tape. Does government bear some of the responsibility for some of the cost overruns? Dave Lockbaum? Well, the studies we've done have shown that typically it's not a matter of regulations driving costs up so much as the companies that mismanage their activities and run afoul of the regulations. Those drive up costs up far more than the few regulations that don't have a safety nexus. Time and time again, it's been mismanagement that causes nuclear power plants to be shut down for extended periods. We've had 50 reactor shutdowns of over a year since mm -hmm. the Three Mile Island accident. We estimate the cost of each of those to be nearly $2 billion for electricity that was not generated. So it's mismanagement more than a, an overzealous regulator that's crippling the industry. There's another interesting, there's another interesting aspect of that. One of the great success stories of the nuclear industry has been their improvement in the management of the operation of reactors. Mm -hmm. And so in the, in the 60s, 70s, early 80s, the capacity factors of these plants were, on average, 55, 60%. Now they're typically 85 or 90%. And so that means they're running almost all of the year. And the reason for that is that all the, uh, the big players, they started to consolidate, they started to share their knowledge, and became a lot more clever about how they manage the plants. And so the operation of the plants has gotten a whole lot better. And I suspect that those shutdowns that you talked about were concentrated among some of the, the less sophisticated reactor operators. I, I, would, also, I would add that, that there are other industries that are heavily regulated, like biotech, commercial aviation, and commercial space launch, which have managed to be far more innovative than what we've seen within the nuclear sphere. I think that what we need to be looking, at least in terms of facilitating innovation, is developing markets for smaller reactors because they can be built more quickly and you can take greater technical risk without putting so much money up uh, and, and placing as much money at risk. So the current U.S. strategy to look at developing smaller reactors and deploy them commercially, both nationally and internationally, may be the direction to go where you can have an ecosystem that encourages and facilitates more rapid innovation. See, that's puzzling because, I mean, come on, nuclear engineers, some of the smartest people on the planet, right? That, <laughs> yeah, right, I mean, and so yet yes. they, what you just said is they're not innovative and unable to solve some basic managerial problems. Don't get me going on civil engineers. <laughs> ah, okay. The nuclear engineer versus, versus the civil engineers. Dave Lockbaum, a lot of these plants have been designed to run for 40, 50 years. They're now in, at the end of their designed lifetime. A lot of the utilities want to keep them running for another 20 years because they're cash cows, right? Once they're built, it's all profit after a certain point. Does the unit of concerned scientists feel safe, with, comfortable with these plants running for another 20 years beyond their designed lifetime? We looked at that, and we looked at the, the risk is really dominated by what's called the bathtub curve of failure, chance of failure versus lifetime, bathtub curve due to its shape. 
As plants get older, they approach if, or enter the wear-out phase where the chance of failure goes up. If you shut down a nuclear plant and replace it with a brand new one, the new one starts on the break-in phase of the curve where the chance of failure is also high. So it's hard to avoid higher risk. The best way to do it is through good management and solid oversight so you can properly manage the risk either during the break-in phase or the wear-out phase. We've had nuclear power plants in the United States get into trouble far short of their 40-year lifetimes. We've also had some nuclear power plants run longer than 40 years. So it's not what the calendar says, it's how well you maintain the plant and ensure that safety margins are maintained, whether it's one year or 41 years. Are there any plants in the U.S. that the Union of Concerned Scientists think ought to be shut down? Well, Diablo Canyon and the county would be strong candidates, yes. Because they're unsafe, other than that, we wouldn't have a problem. And Diablo Canyon, because it's on an earthquake fault? No, the fact that it doesn't meet fire protection regulations for a minute that it's ever operated gives us a little cause of concern. This is the one run by the company just indicted for criminal things for something else, right? Okay. Uh, and why does a Nuclear Regulatory Commission allow that to continue operating? That's a good question because the it, Diablo Canyon is not alone. Roughly half the plants in the United States don't meet fire protection regulations that were adopted because of a fire in 1975 at the Browns Ferry plant. Among the reactors that doesn't meet, don't meet the fire protection regulations are the three reactors at Browns Ferry that's the poster child for that near miss. I don't know why the Nuclear Regulatory Commission chooses not to enforce its regulations. Pair Peterson, is the Nuclear Regulatory Commission captured by industry? A lapdog more than a watchdog? The Nuclear Regulatory Commission has to interact with the industry in a way that the, the, the best way to describe it is that when you, when you operate a nuclear plant, the most important thing is to make sure that everybody who works at the plant is willing to report problems. This is what we would call a strong safety culture. Uh, there's, there is this natural tendency to want to punish any mistake, no matter how minor, which in the end can end up causing you to not report mistakes. So it's, it's, there's a societal contract that we have when we use technologies like nuclear energy or spacecraft or biotech, which is that, that we have to encourage the reporting of problems and at minor levels so that they get fixed. And this, I think, is an area where significant improvement has been made in terms of culture. And it would be great if we could see the same thing within our medical system. If you think about a place where there's disincentives to report any kind of problem and we have a lot of mistakes made because of it, when it comes to compliance with regulations such as those for fire protection, I think that the NRC has concluded that plants have taken compensatory measures which it judges to be adequate. This said, it would be much better if we could move to having all the plants in full compliance with fire protection. And in fact, this is one of the reasons why we should probably be moving towards the risk-informed approach for fire protection, which has been implemented by some, but maybe not all of the plants. The new regulations were adopted in 2004, a decade ago, yeah. are risk-informed, and they don't meet those either. So, How much would it cost to be fire compliant? I mean, is this $40 million at Diablo Canyon is the estimate by the company. And can the California regulators force them to do that, or is that because it's the Federal Nuclear Regulatory Commission has jurisdiction over safety, and the state regulators have jurisdiction over price? Exactly. Like NRC is the only game in time in terms of safety, nuclear safety. But to get back to the point you, question you asked Pierre earlier, we don't believe the Nuclear Regulatory Commission is captured or anything like that. An example we cite most recently is the Fort Cahoon plant in Nebraska was shut down for two and a half years, started up last December because the NRC inspectors found safety problems there and required those to be fixed. So it's not a case of the NRC's Sergeant Schultz or always turns a blind eye. In the fire issue, they believe that serious fires can't happen, so the 
the slow resolution of the fire compliance issues is okay. And is fire a concern at San Onofre? Could an earthquake trigger a fire at San Onofre? When I've ever heard about concerns at San Onofre, it's the earthquake concern that here in California. So, Dave Lockbaum? It could. Nuclear plants use a lot of flammable materials, hydrogen gas and highly flammable fluids for lubricating, and an earthquake could cause those to be released and start a fire. The NRC's senior managers testified to the commission that the fire hazard represents 50% of the core meltdown risk at the average nuclear power plant, which means it's equal to all other hazards combined. And that's if you meet the regulations. If you don't meet the regulations, the risk management gets worse. So I've done a number of programs on nuclear. Fire has rarely come up. We think about earthquakes and other things, you know, terrorists, planes flying and that sort of thing. If this is such a big risk, it seems underreported. It's not well known. We've been trying for a year, so, so thanks for the compliment of us putting a spotlight on this issue. <laughs> I guess I should read more of your stuff. But I think the reason fire is such a hazard is the same. It would perform the same role that the tsunami floods did at Fukushima. Fire can wipe out the electrical cables for primary systems and their backups as they did at Browns Ferry in 1975. It's been unreported because we haven't had a serious fire in this country. You know, we, we tend to fight this, the crisis du jour. We haven't had a serious fire since Waterford in 96. So it's fallen off the radar screens. We're trying to put it back. I swear we are. And so you're not only saying that the Diablo Canyon plant, its license should not be renewed, and that's in the works, but you're saying it should be shut down for safety concerns. When the NRC passes a regulation or issues an operating license, we view that as a three-way contract between the NRC, the plant owner, and the public. They, they protect the owner from the NRC requiring more stringent regulations or more stringent requirements that cost more. They should also protect the public from the NRC accepting less. For 10 years, the NRC has accepted less than what the safety bar is set at. They don't have a right to do that. Dave Lockbaum is Director of Nuclear Safety Project at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Our other guests today at Climate One are John Kumi from the Steyer Taylor Center for Energy Policy and Finance at Stanford, and Per Peterson, Professor of Nuclear Engineering at UC Berkeley. I'm Greg Dalton. John Kumi, on relicensing, uh, do you have concerns about these plants uh, eking out another 20 years of life, or you think that's case by case, you're fine with that? I, I think it's a case by case thing, and as long as they're responsibly managed and they're meeting the regulations, then I don't have a problem with it, but I think it's, it's important that those regulations be enforced and that we have healthy safety cultures. We also, it's important to recognize all energy technologies have risks, and it's how we manage those risks that allows us then to go on with our lives and use these different technologies to accomplish the goals that we have. So we need to figure out a way to innovate, not just in technology, but also in our institutional structures and our incentives and the ways that we encourage people to report problems. And if we don't do institutional innovation as well as technical innovation, then we're not going to be able to count on many of these technologies that we would like to count on to reduce climate risks. And speaking on climate risks, let's talk about the shale gale, shale gas that has fundamentally changed the uh, energy landscape in the United States and around the world. It's made people like John Rowe, who used to run the most numbers of nuclear power plants in the United States, say they're uneconomic right now in most markets. Per Peterson, how is cheap natural gas hitting the nuclear industry? Well, it's really it's specific to the United States. Every other place in the world, pretty much except a few places in the Middle East, has much higher natural gas prices than we do. The interesting thing is that if you look at the fracking technology, 
over two-thirds of the revenues in 2012, by my calculation, came from the liquids, the oil, uh, but only one-quarter of the energy from the fracking was coming from there. So I think that the fracking that's going on in the United States right now is really oriented towards getting the liquids out, which you can sell at $100 a barrel, which is about five times the price of the energy that would be in this equivalent amount of natural gas. So you're talking about fracking for oil. It's Frac okay. People often associate fracking with natural gas. It's also done Correct. for oil. And right now, natural gas is a byproduct. But with it being about a factor of four to five lower in price than it is most of the rest of the world, you can expect that there's going to be efforts to take advantage of that, both by exporting it and by bringing additional manufacturing back here. And as Jonathan has said in the past, one of the key things we know about natural gas prices is that while we can't predict them, we know that they will be volatile. So having an energy system where our electricity prices are completely and tightly coupled to the price of natural gas may not be a wise policy decision. So you're saying if the price of natural gas goes up, then the economics of nuclear will look more favorable in the future. This is just a snapshot in time. Gas will not stay cheap forever. In fact, the U.S. has already approved enough export terminals to be the number two exporter. It's really the question of whether we're going to be number one or number two. And if fracking is deployed around the world, then uh, on the flip side of that, natural gas could compete with nuclear in other in China. Mm -hmm. China doesn't have fracking yet. If China gets big into fracking, that could pull the rug under nuclear. Is that plausible? That, that's plausible. And also, I think we need to step back a bit and look at the global picture for nuclear technology. Because the United States arguably has been the most innovative in areas such as introducing improved approaches to safety and the design of new plants and other features that I think we'd like to see deployed worldwide. And if the US is not active in bringing its technologies out into the rest of the world, as we've been successfully in China, then we're not really fulfilling one of, of our fundamental responsibilities. And if we do step back and look more at the picture of the international market for deployment of new reactors, I think that the United States and its vendors and its designers could be playing a much larger role than we are currently. But that would take a more comprehensive national strategy that would aim partly at making sure that U.S. can better export technologies to countries that meet requirements for nonproliferation, security, and safety. So we're a good actor and we ought to stay in the game and not be, not, not be a marginalized is what you're saying. Well, certainly. I, again, I, I, I think David would probably agree that overall the designs that the United States has developed compared to many of the others in the world are better and that we'd like to see them more widely deployed. No? Yeah. David? David uh, we, we did a report in 2008 called Nuclear Power in a Warming World, and the safest, the best reactor we evaluated was the EPR, Evolutionary uh, I, Power I, Reactor. I would, I would disagree Which is from with from where? That. Okay, we're getting somewhere now. <laughs> it's from France. France. It, the, the EPR, um, basically, it, it doubles down on the whole concept of, of using redundancy and diversity of active components. And that puts, it, it requires electrical power to operate. Reactors which are smaller and which have the intrinsic capability to remove heat without electrical power for emergency decay heat removal, and then which have active uh, normal shutdown cooling systems for diversity, it's simpler, better, cheaper, and it eliminates the need to worry about Fukushima type of accidents. It's not really true because the passive safety systems are generally only good for 72 hours, and then you need to replenish the tank or whatever you're using to 
the Fukushima accident involved a power outage the, of The AP-1000 can go indefinitely with uh, the passive heat removal after you shut it down. Now, in a loss of coolant accident, it's different, but when you shut it down, it removes the K-heat and it uh, rejects it to the air. So it, it does it indefinitely. We agree to disagree. The U.S. is not at the lead of the safest reactors. Um, EPR is way ahead. How about China? China is the biggest uh, sort of deployer right now of nuclear technology. Are they safe? Their biggest problem is they're building U.S. reactor technologies instead of the EPRs. <laughs> so they're building EPRs as well. But I think this really is a critical area where the ability to remove decay heat without relying on electrical power and to demonstrate that you can do it reliably through tests and, and uh, modeling and, and other methods is the correct direction for nuclear energy to go. Because the other thing that we worry about, and Union Concerned Scientists worries about a lot, is the question of security. And it is far easier to protect a plant that has passive safety systems than one with active safety systems. Because active safety systems, it's equipment that you have to go and routinely inspect every single shift. Whereas the passive systems, you can lock the equipment down in ways that makes it much less accessible. So the physical protection of passive plants is far easier than it is for the EPR. I forgot to mention, we did that report in 2008. We evaluated from both a safety and a security standpoint, and EPR still came out way ahead of anything else. I, so, I understand, but we should go back and look at that more closely, because I think you missed a few things. Well, I think the others would drop, but we can do that if you'd like to. Good. So you're saying the country that makes Renault and Citroen makes the best nuclear power plants in the world? They make the safest ones, yes. Well, th that's partly because they take so long to build because they're so large that you just don't end up building them. So, How about China's also pushing ahead on their thorium reactors? There's a possibility for a new type of material, new type of, uh, new type of reactor. We hear breeder reactors, thorium reactors, different kinds of fuel. Pierre Peterson? I think the Chinese have an excellent approach and strategy with respect to looking at how to develop molten salt technology for high temperature reactors and ultimately to implement a thorium cycle. They're working closely with us in the United States. And they're taking the intermediate step of working with salts as a coolant for high temperature fuels, solid fuels, which then sets things up so that you could potentially move on to fluid fuels that enable sustainable use of thorium. And that's a pretty exciting activity that they have underway there. You mentioned nuclear security. There was the, the megatons to megawatts program that took fuel from the equivalent of about 20,000 nuclear warheads, made it into low-enriched uranium. That recently ended. It was an $8 billion project, no cost to taxpayers, supported by Republicans and Democrats. What does that leave us, John Comey, in terms of the security of this enriched uranium? That's, now things aren't going so well with Russia, right? Is security of nuclear power plants a new concern because that program has ended and what's happening with, uh, with uh, Russia? I'm not, I'm not sure it's, it's any worse now, but I think that the, the work that, that Para has done on the non-proliferation -prolifer, non stuff is, is something that, that he should comment on. I mean, this is an area that's a little outside of okay. my... Okay. Peterson? Well, the conventional reactors that we operate today, the fuel that goes into them is not a security concern. It's low-enriched uranium. I think everybody's quite comfortable with that security dimension. The issue that emerges is if you use highly enriched uranium, which really is not necessary for civil nuclear energy, or if you use separated plutonium, which is also a substantial concern for theft. There's not any need to use separated plutonium within the fuel cycle, even if you transition to closed fuel cycles, as long as you make the step past water-cooled reactors. 
So the way we operate reactors currently in the United States, uh, they're quite secure from the perspective of theft of materials. Let's talk about waste. Yucca Mountain uh, didn't work out so well. What is the waste solution for nuclear waste? Right now it's kind of in lots of little pools all over the country. Uh, how's that going to be solved? Pierre Peterson? Well, the United States, we're at a standstill right now for political reasons with respect to our program for waste, and that's really a shame. What we know is that no matter what you do within fission energy systems, there's no way you can avoid the need to develop geologic disposal capability. There's a strong scientific and technical consensus that deep geologic isolation can provide appropriate and safe disposal of residual materials from nuclear uh, facilities. So the challenge has been developing that kind of disposal. Sweden and Finland have now successfully done it. But in the United States right now, we're pretty much at a political logjam that Congress needs to break. And I hope they do it by following recommendations from the Blue Ribbon Commission. And They always follow Blue Ribbon Commissions. I was told that sometimes those reports go into the drawer of a desk and stay there. And I'm just yeah. crossing my fingers yeah. that ours yeah. did. But you could restart a new program that would look for new disposal sites. Wouldn't preclude restarting Yucca at some point in the future. But we could certainly find better places than Yucca Mountain for geologic repositories. And we should be moving forward to do that. Yucca was a political decision, right? I mean, Nevada, they had test sites. No one's there. No one will notice. It's kind of hot already. Just put it there, right? <laughs> well, the, Dave Luckbaum? The Nuclear Waste Policy Act of 1982 had Yucca Mountain among nine other mm -hmm. candidates for repositories. The idea was for the Department of Energy to look at these ten, study their geologies, meteorologies, et cetera, and rank them from most suitable to least suitable, recognizing that no site was going to be perfect and no site was likely to be absolutely ruled out. But in 1987, Congress changed that and said, just pick Yucca Mountain. It would have been better to look at many sites, whether 10 was the right number or not, but pick a number of sites. None was going to be perfect, none was going to be bad, but, and then rank them from most suitable, least suitable. We got off that track, forced Nevada to be selected before you did the homework, which made the people of Nevada upset. And it was, it was the wrong dynamic to get to that, to solve the solution for such a long period. It's a little bit late now to turn back the clock and unring a bell, but we, we do need to do something. I think the Lululemon Commission recommendations are closer to being enacted in Congress than any time over the last 10 years, even though the Lululemon Commission is not that old, but there's more interest in Capitol Hill right now on ending the status quo. Everybody's motives are different, but everybody agrees that what we're, the interim status quo is just untenable. So it's likely that many of those recommendations will be implemented, perhaps not all, maybe all, but I think that would be a step in the right direction, maybe several steps in the right direction. Because isn't the waste that's stored at the near nuclear sites now vulnerable to, to the types of things? They're in, what, the, in, the, in these pools, that sort of thing. It's not a long-term solution. Roughly 75% of the spent fuels currently in pools, wet pools. 25% is in dry cask. Our analysis shows that you could actually flip those numbers and accelerate the transfer from pools to cask, which would reduce the safety and security threat of the fuel watts in the pools. You would increase the safety and security threat of the cask, but much less than the reduction on the spool side. That's what we'd recommend doing.
And, okay, so that's <laughs> moving from pools to casts, and then there should be one or a few places around the country that where this is centrally stored. Then you have the transportation problem of yeah. getting it there and people who don't want it going through their backyard. Bill well, Peterson. We have, we have experience with transportation. We do it routinely with defense waste and with naval spent fuel. In Europe, on a quantity of waste of spent fuel that's been transported is similar to the total quantity that we have because in Europe most of it has been reprocessed and therefore had to be transported. And it's been done safely, but you have to put in place the infrastructure to do that and the local emergency response and all of the other things that are necessary. We have a well-functioning system right now for the, on the defense side for waste uh, that is generated from uh, national laboratories and, and uh, weapons programs. And what we need to do is keep that system operating so that we maintain that capability until we have systems in place to, to manage commercial spent fuel. It makes a lot of sense to consolidate the fuel that's at shutdown reactor sites into a smaller number of sites, and that could be a good intermediate step toward ultimate uh, disposition of spent fuel. At the, in the same time, we do need to develop geologic disposal for high-level waste and spent fuel. And in that case, it makes a lot of sense for us to be trying to put high-level waste from the defense sector into geologic disposal as soon as we can because that provides a way to demonstrate that uh, geologic disposal works. Pierre Peterson is a professor of nuclear engineering at UC Berkeley. We're talking about nuclear power at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. I'd like to talk about the liability shield, uh, the Price-Anderson Act, and financing, and how that sort of the assignment of risk for nuclear power plants in terms of the socialized <coughs> risk as well as the risk that's borne by the, the companies that build these and the ratepayers. That Union of Scientists, you're interested in consumers. Your views on the liability shield that taxpayers are bearing for nuclear power plants? Well, about 10 years ago, I testified before Congress saying that the Price-Anderson Act or the federal liability insurance is a barrier to safety improvements. Because if you develop a safer plant, a better containment design, a better risk management tool, that adds cost to the bottom line of the plant, but you don't save any money in liability insurance. When I bought my house in Tennessee by installing a fire extinguisher and deadbolt locks, my insurance premium dropped more the first year than those things cost. So federal liability insurance is, it wasn't its intent, but the consequence is to provide an impediment to safety improvements. The new reactors that are said to have passive safety systems and things like that, we've asked their owners to opt out of federal liability insurance. If they're really as safe as they claim, let them go down to State Farm and get their own liability. As long as my money's backing up their claims, I'm going to remain skeptical. Pierre Peterson, you wrote the article about sort of stifled innovation, and here's a case where he's saying that, that essentially government subsidy is stifling innovation. So well, there's a couple of dimensions. The first is, as Jonathan uh, gave the numbers earlier in our discussion, but the effective subsidy for coal right now is somewhere between four and eight cents per kilowatt hour. And that's because of the external costs, public health damage and other things. And if you multiply that by the total amount of coal that is being used, that turns out to be about a $2 trillion per year subsidy. And it absolutely dwarfs. You would have to have multiple Fukushima accidents every single year to get anywhere close to the subsidy that we have currently for fossil fuel use. So when you, when you view the Price-Anderson subsidy in that light, in, in the light of all the other subsidies, it's very difficult for companies to ensure uh, risks that involve very rare or infrequent types of events. The utility industry in the United States is on the hook for the first $10 billion of cost that might emerge from any accident. 
and I think in some ways uh, it's, it's just going to be difficult to see industry being willing to run defense sites or run reactors if there's not some sort of public acceptance of some of the risk associated with very rare type of events. So there's, two, there's two parts of this. So one part is that people probably won't build reactors unless there's some sort of shield. And then there's the question of how you structure mm -hmm. that shield. And there's ways to change that to make the incentives a little more sensible. But all energy sources have externalities, and some of them require subsidies to make them at least uh, attractive to private investors. And so you have to balance, you have to do a, a fair comparison across the different uh, technologies, as Per was alluding to. And so this is a subsidy, yes. Uh, probably people wouldn't build reactors without it. And the question is then, what is your alternative? And there are alternatives, but you need to account properly for all of them if you're going to think about this. You can't just look at one technology and say, here's the subsidy, that's a bad thing. You have to look at the whole life cycle for all technologies. Whenever subsidies come up, people often point to someone who's getting a bigger one. That's like, you know, corn's, well, oil's bigger, and oil's like, oh, no, corn's bigger, and, and justifying their own subsidy. This is Climate One, and we're talking about nuclear power. I'm Greg Dalton. Our guests are John Kumi from the Steyer Taylor Center for Energy and Policy Finance at Stanford, Dave Lockbaum from the Uni Union of Concerned Scientists, and Per Peterson, a nuclear engineering professor at UC Berkeley. Let's have our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Hello, I'm Dave Masson with Citizens Climate Lobby, and we are, in fact, lobbying Congress for a carbon tax to uh, internalize those external costs of using fossil fuel and also to uh, greatly speed up the clean energy revolution, which is, which is starting already. Um, we have Mark Jacobson's and Mark DeLucci's analysis that the entire world can be powered by renewable energy in 20 to 40 years. Uh, that's without fossil fuel or nuclear. Given the considerations of cost, safety, waste, need for public subsidy, I'm wondering why we're talking about nuclear power instead of talking about a carbon tax and letting our entrepreneurs uh, really get the renewable energy going. Mayor Peterson, why do we even need nukes? Well, the, the first thing is that, that while wind has a low production cost, if you take a look at the statistics for its production, for example, 2012 in California, the daily average production varies if you do it on a scatter plot day to day by a factor of 100 over the course of a year. So when you start looking at the question of how do you store it so that you can have it be available on a reliable basis, you begin to discover that we just do not have affordable storage technologies that allow you to make this work. So then you begin to get into more complicated solutions and theoretical solutions that involve things such as depending on long distance transmission, uh, depending on various types of demand response. There are risks that that will not work and that indeed will end up stuck with a substantial amount of our electricity continuing to be generated by fossil plants that are operating during those periods of time when the, the wind and solar are not available. So, John Cooney? One of the recent studies that Dan Kamen at UC Berkeley has done, he looked at the Western state's power grid. And what they found was that they could, it, within t uh, 20 years or so, you could have roughly a third of the electricity associated with these variable sources with much less storage than we thought. So I think part of what, what has to happen here is that we need to learn to be a lot more clever in how we operate the grid. We need to be smart about forecasting, because you can actually day ahead pretty reliably forecast wind. 
-hmm. And so with smart forecasting, with better demand response, as you alluded to, and uh, some storage, but not as much as people think, we can operate uh, electric grids with very substantial fractions of variable resources. Let's go to our next audience question. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you. My name is Paul Carroll. I'm with the Plowshares Fund here in San Francisco. I think this has been an excellent discussion, but a couple things underlying a lot of this conversation I think are missing. Let me explain that it, it's sort of the human factor. We, we're talking a lot about technology, how we can improve safety through passive or active systems and so on. But um, Per, you mentioned our defense waste and said that's actually going pretty well. Well, in fact, the one location we have in New Mexico, which is called WIP, the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant, recently had a, a mishap and plutonium escaped and was found nearby. It's barely been open a decade. And these are constituents that are dangerous for millennia. And so I, I wondered if you could address sort of the fact that while these may be low probability, high consequence kind of events, the constituents, the contaminants we're talking about, unlike coal or gas and so on, last essentially forever, nuclear fission products. And then the second piece I wanted to get at was also about sort of human fallibility. Fukushima became a nuclear catastrophe, not because of one thing, but because of a whole bunch of things that came at it that were unforeseen. An earthquake that caused a tsunami, that caused a wave that was, I think, six feet higher than the diesel generators for emergency backup were positioned. And so it was sort of a failure of imagination, like Richard Clark said after 9-11. We think about one or two things going wrong, but not five, six, or seven. So I wonder if, if you can sort of get out of human, the technical mm -hmm. box a bit. Human fallibility, Per Peterson? Well, the, the ability to uh, take into account human failure is very important, and this relates to safety culture and the willingness to report problems to senior people. When you begin to look at some of the challenges that the Japanese have faced, many of the most important ones that cause, for example, delays in venting of containments and much larger releases of radioactive material than were necessary, Many of those related to the way that it was difficult within that culture for people to report problems to higher levels. So, so that's one dimension. The, the very long-term nature of radioactive waste is one of the critical reasons why we do need to develop geologic disposal where we can place it in environments where we know it can be safely isolated for long periods of time and therefore that human exposures can be kept to minimum. Again, one needs to go back and remember that our current reliance on fossil fuel comes at enormous public health cost. And furthermore, if you think about what's going to happen to climate, not just in the next hundred years because of the perturbation of what we've been doing, but in the next millennia and multiple millennia, because this is an extraordinarily large perturbation on the climate, long-term consequences of our current activities are enormous. And we can debate whether nuclear renewables are going to win in the end or be most effective, but currently fossil fuels are growing far faster than anything else that we're using. And I don't know how we get to a solution unless we pursue multiple options that can take the place of fossil fuel. Dave Lockbaum. Just a quick follow-up on the, the second part of that question with the, the human fallibility. We, we've been advocating what we call the X plus one approach to safety. Anytime you build a 15-foot tall protective seawall or you design a plant to withstand a 9.0 magnitude earthquake, you need to ask and answer the question, what if one what larger if occurs? And make mm -hmm. sure you have some contingency plans other than relying on a miracle to mm -hmm. save the day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you have those plans and identify what those contingencies are, you can build them into your risk management schemes to ensure that they stay, they're installed and they remain reliable for the life of the plant. Absolutely. So our next question, welcome to Climate One. 
My name is Aaron Burdick. I'm with the Sierra Club Beyond Coal Campaign. And I was wondering if you could speak to some of the nuclear retirements that have been announced in the last year or so. We had San Onofre here, but we've also had some plants in deregulated wholesale markets. And so I'm curious, you know, how you th are thinking about new plants potentially being proposed, as well as how existing plants in deregulated markets will continue to fare. Uh, and also that question in the context of increasing renewables that may be depressing wholesale prices like they have in Germany. I'd like to tackle a piece of that retirement. Dave Lockbaum or Pierre Peterson? Well, last year was an unusual year. We had four new reactors begin construction in the southeast. We also had four other reactors permanently shut down or announced their permanent shutdowns last year. There's a fifth reactor that's going to be shutting down this fall. The difficulty is economics, as many people have said, is that it's a difficult environment. It's difficult to, to make money at nuclear power right now. The challenge is, is the old Benjamin Graham thing for picking stocks. When you buy a stock, is, is the seller right or is the buyer right? Chances are they're both not right. So is people investing in new nuclear power right or the people that are shutting nuclear power plants down right? Chances are they both could be right. Chances are one of them is wrong. All right. These shutdowns of these plants come from two different kinds of factors. Some of them were because they had major equipment replacement requirements that were not affordable because of failures of steam generators or failures to be able to repair a containment job that had been botched. And ultimately, it goes back to management mistakes, uh, as Jonathan was pointing out. The other ones that are shutting down, it's happening in markets where we're starting to see negative electricity prices on a periodic basis. And a negative electricity price is a kind of strange thing. It says that electricity is a waste and you're paying people to dispose of it. You're paying people not to put electricity into the grid. And the reason that you're seeing that is because wind generation is perfectly happy to take a negative price all the way to two cents a kilowatt hour uh, before they will shut off and go off of the grid. And that's, that's because of subsidies. Well, if, well. If, if storage was easy, people would be taking this negatively priced electricity and making money by dumping it into batteries. But storage is not cheap unless you can cycle it on about a 24-hour basis. And when you look at the variability associated with renewable energy, it, it depends on weather patterns that have variability over weekly, monthly, seasonal time frames, and there is no storage technology that works over those time frames. You can develop studies that say that things work in the future if you do a bunch of stuff, but there's not any existence proof that you can do it. Well, John Comey? What you have is a, an archaic utility grid that needs to be upgraded in many ways for different challenges that we're facing. And if we were to change how we operate the utility grid, these negative prices would not prevail. We right. would build more transmission. We would uh, be better at forecasting. We would be better able to modulate demand in response to a change in price. And if, we, if we're not successful in getting that to happen, then there's lots of large-scale infrastructure dreams that we've had that have not quite worked out the way we wanted them to, we'll be stuck with needing to use a lot of fossil fuel in the future. That is a real risk. Let's have our next audience question. I'm Lucas Carlat. I'm a postdoctoral scholar at UC Berkeley, and my question has to do with liability insurance for nuclear plants. What kind of influence does the US, US have on um, the liability systems in countries to which it exports nuclear technology? And do those countries have systems that incentivize continuous safety improvements? Mayor Peterson? 
Well, that's, that's a very good question, and to answer it in detail, you'd need to look at, at a wide variety of different countries. I think that we, we know that there's a, a wide range of capabilities in terms of ability to operate plants safely and responsibly. I think David might also be able to comment on this. What we'd like to see is a convergence of two factors. One is we know that you know, humans are going to have to manage nuclear risks competently pretty much in perpetuity. Even if we don't use nuclear energy in the long term, we will be managing large inventories of nuclear materials with all the attendant security risks. So we'd like to see an international order emerge that encourages responsible behavior and discourages irresponsible behavior with respect to safety, non-proliferation, and security of all nuclear materials. And this, this is something that takes a lot of effort, and it's one of those areas where the United States sometimes has botched things. Other times we've done spectacularly well. The whole existence of an international framework where the majority of countries in the world have signed on to essentially allowing their infrastructure to be monitored for nuclear materials and to, to spot diversion is a pretty remarkable achievement. It hasn't worked perfectly, but boy, it's much better than the alternative. Let's go to our next audience question. Welcome. We're talking about nuclear power at Climate One. Uh, most of the discussion has been on light water reactor technology. If you had your, your way with things, how much would you increase the emphasis on breeder designs versus continuing with uh, old-fashioned technology? Breeders have been around the corner for about 40, 50 years. Yeah, my, my father worked for the Westinghouse Electric Corporation. They were developing the Clinch River Breeder Reactor in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. But I worked for the Union of Concerned Scientists, not the Union of Concerned Science Fictionists. So <laughs> I don't see it ever seeing fruition. We've tried, many countries have tried that. None of them have got it to work. So I, I think it's time to throw in the towel on that idea. Bill Gates gave a TED Talk, talked about small nuclear reactors in the ground. Was that a breeder reactor? Is that a possibility? People are looking at a number of different options. Uh, Russia and China are constructing reactors. The alternative coolants include helium, liquid metals, and molten salts. And all of them have potential advantages over current reactor technology. The thing that deters people from using them is the fact that you're dealing with new materials. And when you do that, there's a learning curve associated with it. But if we were developing and deploying smaller reactors, where it could be affordable to replace components if something unexpected happened. I think that that reduces the barrier to shifting towards systems. And for example, molten salts are intrinsically low pressure. They're chemically stable. They have a number of attributes, including excellent retention of fission products, that arguably make them simpler to work with and safer. And you can deliver heat at higher temperatures, so you can get higher efficiency. But to get to that point, we need to address a bunch of other problems, such as just the ability to construct any kind of nuclear plant on schedule and on budget. Modular technology may help there. Right, so one important aspect of this also is the more smaller scale technologies you have, the more experimentation and learning you can have. And so there are these technical issues with new, new materials and so on, but there's also more rapid innovation that can happen when you move to smaller scale. And you can have economies of manufacturing scale because you can make more of the, the plant in a factory. So these are critical advantages. And so we've always in the nuclear industry focused on economies of unit scale, building a gigantic plant because it's going to get that much more efficient. But as we've seen in some of the other uh, energy technologies, if you move towards uh, manufacturing scale, 
technologies, smaller scale technologies, you can innovate much more rapidly. So it's a critical part. Let's go to our next question. Welcome to Climate One. Uh, thank you. Um, so I have a question for you regarding the uh, state of our regulatory infrastructure. Drawing on the example of the BP oil spill in the Gulf, uh, we found that there were kind of a, two different problems associated with our regulatory infrastructure at the time. There was the cozy relationship between the regulators and the industry, and there was also the fact that um, the regula regulatory agencies were significantly understaffed and uh, did not have sufficient resources. Mr. Lockbaum, earlier you kind of dismissed the idea of collusion between the nuclear industry and the nuclear regulatory agencies, but I was wondering if you could speak to whether or not the nuclear regulatory agencies have enough resources, both in terms of staffing and kind of tools at their disposal for punishing offenders in order to properly police the industry as it should be. That's, hey, a, great, that's a great question. We currently believe the Nuclear Regulatory Commission has sufficient staffing to discharge its abilities or its duties. There's a couple things that we think guard against collusion or regulatory capture or however you want to characterize it. The first is that the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, as many federal agencies, has an inspector general mm -hmm. that's done some very good work about looking about agency malfeasance, misconduct, whatever. So the inspector general is basically the public's guardian to ensure that the Nuclear Regulatory Commission is acting up front and fairly. The second component of that that, assure, that helps provide that is transparency. If you look at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and its records, but for information dealing with privacy, trademarks, and nuclear security, most of the information is available on the NRC's website. You can download it 24-7. So we believe tra transparency and in an NRC inspector general that's rigorous and robust are good protections against regulatory capture, regulatory malfeasance, whatever the adjective is. We have to wrap it up, but I want to end by asking each of you quickly what you do, or what the next thing you will do to manage your own personal carbon footprint. John Coomey, aside from having a breeder reactor in your backyard, what are you going to do to lower your carbon? So we still have a few halogen bulbs in our house. Almost all of them are LEDs, but there's a few halogens. Yeah, I got a few of those too. Those are tough. Pair Peters, the very next thing I'm doing is hopping on BART to go back home. Should we let them off that easy? I don't know. But oh, do you asked me what's the very next thing. Okay, but <laughs> systemic, next systemic thing maybe. Or the okay, well, I'm, I'm going to try to, to improve the situation so that nuclear energy may be able to play a safe and, and useful role in the future, and, and that, that might have an impact too. So your students will have jobs. Okay, uh, Dave Lockbaum. I work out of a home office where the commute is down two flights of stairs, drive a Honda Insight. I have a pretty small carbon footprint to start with. Plus, I'm a cheap son of a gun, so I don't, my thermostat's real low and other things. So I think I'm doing pretty good. We have to end it there. We've been talking about nuclear power at Climate One. Our guests have been Dave Lockbaum, director of the Nuclear Safety Project at the Union of Concerned Scientists, and author of Fukushima, Study of a Nuclear Disaster. We also heard from John Kumi, a research fellow at the Steyer Taylor Center for Energy Policy and Finance at Stanford, and author of Cold Cash, Cool Climate. And Per Peterson is a professor of nuclear engineering at UC Berkeley and a former member of the Blue Ribbon Commission on America's Nuclear Future. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming today. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. Our producer is Jane Ann Chen. Alyssa Kerr is the assistant producer. The audio engineer is Andre Hurd, and editor is Katie McCurran. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. This is Climate One, a conversation about powering America's future. <laughs>